Well, I wonder what you first think about when I say the word love. I'm pretty sure that if I opened this up and you started feeding answers, that we would get a lot of really good quality theological answers back that would give us insights and various perspectives on this word that we talk about all the time, but sometimes look at from very different viewpoints. And maybe we would hear something about the fact that this love is sacrificial, and that's true, or, or that it's selfless. In other words, it's not about me, and that's true. Maybe we'd hear that it has something to do with the freedom of love, that love is actually something that's lavished upon us just because, in this case, God loves us. And we get to turn around and do the same thing for other people. So love is free in that regard. Or, or maybe we would hear that love is the essence of the character of God. Because after all, it says that God is love. That's the essence of his character. It's the very substance of his nature to love Maybe we'd hear something about the way that God manifested his love, that he displayed his love to us on the cross. And, and that's true. God, it says, demonstrated his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Every one of these and many, many more that we could name uh, shine a beautiful light on the character and the quality of love. They give us kind of handholds by which to grasp this multi-splendored word. But do you know how Paul first fills in the blank? How he first fills in the blank of the famous, in the famous love chapter when he says love is? He says love is patient. I wish he had said some other things. I, I wish that he had begun with something maybe more philosophical or maybe even something more abstract. I like thinking about great ideas, but this is just so down in the dirt. It's so just really honest. It's so where love meets the road, and that gets sticky for me because it's not just an idea that I can play with in my mind. It's not just a theory that I can talk about or discuss. It's actually where I live. So love, Paul says, when he begins his whole description in that Anthem of praise in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, describing love as it operates in the world. He gets right down on the ground, and there in the dust he says, very first, love is patient. Now, I love love. That is, I love the idea of love, but I hate waiting I mean, who likes sitting in a doctor's office and waiting for him or standing in line at the grocery store or sitting at a red light? Waiting is kind of a world between worlds. It's the empty space between where I am and where I want to be. It's the blank between what I have and what I want to have. That's waiting. And I'm not sure that anybody really likes it. But it's implied here in this idea of love is patient. Love is willing to wait. In fact, not only is willing to wait, but the very nature of love is to wait patiently. Again, I, I would like it if Paul had chosen some other way to begin this. And often when we, when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we read these like a list of glorious attributes, and they are but it's easy to forget that they're not just beautiful, they are, but that they're also very dusty. That they're right down in the dirt and ready for application for us. So it's here, really, in a sense, in God's waiting room that Paul takes us to the trenches of real life and in the muck of ordinary living describes for us what it looks like to have love Operate. What does it look like for love to act? I want to back up with you for a moment and look at how Paul arrived at this point in the letter of 1 Corinthians because it will help us to understand why it is that he begins with this idea that love is patient. And so there are a lot of problems, as you'll remember, in this church of Corinth. Many, many problems. And you'll find that Paul is addressing them one after another. 
and a series of questions that they'd asked him as he opens this letter and unfolds it. And what you find as you go through these different reprimands and reproofs and instructions and corrections that Paul offers in the book of 1 Corinthians is that many, many of the problems that the Corinthian believers were facing were, well, basically they were love problems. And I want to show you how that plays out. If you look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're just going to march very quickly through here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, you can look here. You find that the Corinthian believers, were they loved their heroes. They loved their heroes. They were all about whether it was Paul that they were following or Apollos that they were following or Cephas that they were following or some were even boasting, going so far as to say, I follow Christ. They were really pretty much just people who loved heroes. It's not all that different today. So they loved their heroes. They name-dropped all the time. They were all about having the right associations with the right people, whoever that was that they deemed was the right person. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you find out that they loved their wisdom Look over at about verse 18 of chapter 2, 1 Corinthians. You know what? There isn't a verse 18. There's another verse that talks about this. Uh, here it is. It's in verse 18 of chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. And you find out that they are having to experience the substance of true wisdom because their understanding was not sufficient. And they didn't know it. They didn't really feel it. They love their own wisdom. They think they're wise, but Paul says, but you are fools. So they love their heroes. They love their wisdom. In verse, uh, chapter 4 and verses 6 and 7, you find out that they just love themselves. They love themselves. They want to show, they compare themselves among themselves to show their superiority. You'll find that in about verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4. 6 and 7, Paul writes, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Can you hear their boasting? They're jockeying for position as they're loving themselves and saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm the man. And, uh, oh, no, 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 but I have, and, and, and they're working back and forth, comparing themselves among themselves and proving that they are not wise, but they do, in fact, love themselves. And then in, in chapter 5, you find out that they love their sin. They love their sin. In fact, uh, in this church, there was unreproved incest taking place, a sin worse than that that was going on outside the church and they were not correcting the problem. They just loved their sin. They didn't see a problem with it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and in the beginning of the chapter, you'll find that they loved their rights. It's about lawsuits. And so Paul says, wait, 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 wait. Wouldn't you rather just be wronged? But no, no. They would rather be right. They would rather have their rights upheld to have their rights affirmed, and so they were going to law with one another. They loved their rights. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you find out that they loved their pleasure. In verses 12 through 20, they're dealing with their lusts. They're responding to their inborn desires by practicing immorality. They loved their pleasure. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 12 through 13, you find out they love their freedom. And so some were sinning against others, perhaps, by, by um, exercising their freedom at the cost of a weaker brother's conscience. And Paul says, don't do that. It would rather not even eat meat while the world stands. They love their freedom. They love their food. Uh, you find that in that famous passage where we... Talk about the Lord's Supper. And you might remember, we often refer to this. In fact, I think we, I referenced it last week, I think, when we were having the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll remember that the, the Corinthians were coming together and sharing in the Lord's Supper, but it wasn't really even the Lord's Supper. Not the way that they were celebrating it. They were celebrating it like a feast at which to eat a lot and get drunk. 
And then that left some people having nothing. They loved their food. They loved what they could put in their own mouths with no consideration or concern for the people around them. And then in chapter 12, and this is the immediate context into which, of course, chapter 13 falls, they loved their gifts. Really, when I say they loved their gifts, because chapter 12 is a description, a, a, a kind of a whole um, opening up of the idea of spiritual gifts, and chapter 14 continues that. So chapter 13 falls in the middle of a whole discussion of gifts. They didn't just love gifts. What they really loved was preeminence. They loved show. They loved being in the spotlight. They loved having the most. They loved being the best. And so Paul, in this context, has a big problem on his hands to teach them about what love really means. Are you tracking with me? He's got an issue with the Corinthian believers who have a completely broken idea of the true nature of love because they love their heroes and their wisdom and themselves and their sin and their rights and their pleasure and their freedom and their food and their gifts. But they really don't love the way that love should be actually practiced. So in other words, they've got an idea in their minds about what love is, but when it comes down to practicing love, they're very far from the truth. And that's where I often find myself, that I have a great appreciation for concepts of love, and I certainly like being loved by other people and loved by God, but when it comes to me practicing love, Many times my practice falls very far short of what it truly means to love. And in loving someone else, what I may actually be doing is, can I be so bold as to say it? I'm loving myself. Maybe you've experienced it, where you're actually doing something, but the real reason that you're doing something for someone else, and it looks like sacrifice maybe even to them, is because of what you want out of that interaction. Yeah, it's a challenge. It's a, it's a problem that we face. It's common to all of us that we experience that. Now, God has set us free by the blood of Jesus Christ at the cross to not have to do that anymore. For the very first time, because we've been loved by God, we are capable of loving him back and by, of loving the people around us. But we still incline to love ourselves even in what appears to be loving actions toward other people. So I would really prefer that Paul had not begun with something so gritty, so down in the dirt as love is patient. But I think you can understand why he did. Because he had people who needed to actually put the ideas of love right down on the road. Now I want to show you the ideas on which this concept is built. The word here for patience is a special kind of a word. In, in other places, the idea of patience is often the concept of staying under with endurance. Okay? Staying under with endurance. So, for example, uh, we could say that that's demonstrating patience by hanging in there. It's by not squeezing out when the pressure is applied, by not jumping ship or trying to escape. We stay in the trouble without murmuring until God takes the trouble away. That's what one idea for patience is. And you see it played out in various places in the Bible, like James chapter 1 that you're very familiar with. In verses 2 through 4, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness will have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That word for steadfastness actually can be translated patience. That's the idea of staying under the pressure with endurance. Can you hear it? So he's saying the testing of your faith produces this, that you won't squeeze out under pressure because you have your eyes set on God. It's a beautiful thing that God does through trial. That's one idea here of the idea of patience. Romans chapter 5 gives us something similar, another parallel. It says we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. 
That's our word, and that endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That word endurance. So, again, parallel to James chapter 1, we find that suffering produces this kind of patience, this endurance, this this hanging on, this not squeezing out under the pressure of the circumstances of life. And it's very important. Hebrews chapter 12 actually talks about the Lord Jesus demonstrating this kind of patience. In verse 2 it says, Therefore, you're familiar with this, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, now get this, endured the cross. He stayed under the pressure. He, can, he kept on the cross. Think about this for a moment. This is voluntary submission to God by staying in a place of excruciating suffering. That's patience on a level that I can't even imagine. That is the patience of Jesus demonstrated on the cross. And he goes on to say, he who for the joy, he's anticipating what's coming, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He was patient on the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So you could say that Jesus was in the greatest of ways patient with the cross. He stayed under its torture. He remained there without squeezing out under the pressure of his father's abandonment or the pain of the suffering or the shame he experienced. Jesus was patient on the cross. And there is something of this idea of staying under the pressure that is a part of the Corinthian love problem. But the word that's actually used here in 1 Corinthians 13.4 is different. And it adds another dimension to the dimension of what we've just talked about. Yes, you stay under the pressure of whatever it is that God has called you to be in, whether it's a relationship or a trial or a job or a problem of some kind. Yes, you stay under that. But this word brings in another concept because it's being patient with my wife or husband or neighbor or boss. It it, it looks like, well, it builds on the idea of slowness. I'm slow to get angry when my rights are trampled. I'm slow to retaliate when something unkind is said. I'm slow to criticize. It it means, actually, this idea, this word means that I am, get this, long-spirited. How do you like that? I'm long-spirited. I'm slow to do things that will damage another person. So when Paul starts out to describe what love looks like in action, he emphasizes how we relate to one another in relationship to time. And that's where one of our greatest rubs comes. He talks about how we love one another in time. And he emphasizes our propensity to be short-spirited and to be short-tempered and to be in a rush. Love, he says, is patient. In one sense, the implication love is slow. Slow to do anything that would damage another person. Slow to look upon myself first. But in the other sense, quick to look upon another. And you find this kind of an idea actually played out in James chapter 1 in a verse that's considered um, by many to be the key to the book of James. He says, let every man be, do you remember what it says? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And so in one sense, what patience is really doing is being slow to do anything that puts another down. In fact, it's quick If you want to flip the idea around, love is quick to look first upon the needs of someone else. And it's very slow to look upon my own needs. Love is, in that sense, patient 
It is slow. Now, Paul puts these things together in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in an interesting way in, the, um, in, the, in verse number 7. And here's a, like a quartet of slow love. Listen to how they sing together. He says, love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Now, listen to the song as it unfolds. When he says love bears all things, we could say that love is slow to expose. Slow to expose. And that's interesting. Peter actually writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers. Love doesn't expose. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, understand that there is a place to expose sin. And it's very important, but it's always in love. And it's a slow process. We don't just leap to conclusions. We don't just base things on first impressions. We are slow to criticize. We're quick to listen, quick to pay attention. Because love, Peter tells us, love covers. Love does not primarily just expose. So we're slow to expose. And then that's love bears all things. And then he says love believes all things. Love is slow to doubt. Love is slow to doubt. You know, one of the damaging things about gossip is that it plants all kinds of seeds of doubt in our minds about the people around us. Did you hear that? Oh, were you aware that? Oh, yeah. And we start thinking, well, man, boy, I, I never would have thought of that of him. But, I, you know, the more I think about it, uh, yeah, well, and it may be a complete fabrication. It may have absolutely nothing to do with the truth. But it damages us at the very point. We think, well, it's just gossip. Or it was just a, um, we wouldn't even think of it that far. We'd maybe say it was, uh, you know, kind of a, um, maybe that was a little bit out of bounds, but I don't think it was that big a deal. And we do need to know the truth about each other. <laughs> right? <laughs> but I think we can say it's not loving. It's not loving because love believes all things is not quick to doubt. It's slow to doubt. But then he says love hopes all things. And, and there we could say that love is very slow to give up. Love is slow to give up because it's patient. And he says love endures all things. That would be by implication that love is slow to quit. Love is slow to quit. In fact, you find out if you go on just a little bit further in the beginning of verse 8 in this same chapter that he, he says not only that love is slow to quit, but he says love never ends. It just goes on forever. And it's because of that quality of love, which is eternal, that is at least one of the reasons that at the conclusion of this little song, you'll remember he lists this Trio of faith, hope, and love. And he says, but the greatest of these is love. And one of the reasons is because love never ends. Amen. Hope is realized. Faith becomes sight. But love never ends. And so love, it's very important to understand is, well, it's slow. It's slow to expose. It's slow to doubt. It's slow to give up. It's slow to quit. Love is well, it's actually matching my pace to God's. Love is really patient because it's matching my pace with God's. When Melissa and I go walking sometimes, I like to take her hand. And I've often noticed that she does something kind of interesting. I take her hand and she kind of skips a step. And then all of a sudden, we're walking together like uh, the lyrics to a really smooth, nice song. Because she's directly in sync with me. Because all of a sudden she matched her steps to mine and we're just smoothly walking together. I think that's part of the idea here, that we are matching our pace with God's. And if God wants to go slow, then we go slow right with him. In fact, that's what 1 Peter, 2 Peter, excuse me, says. Listen to how it describes this of God. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, the same word is used here of him. 
This is what it says in verse 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now stop right there. This is not a formula by which to calculate heaven's time. It's not a mathematical ratio. It's an expression of timelessness. A thousand years is one day. A day is a thousand years. It's an expression of timelessness. And it's this understanding of timelessness that helps us to understand God's patience better. He goes on to say, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. We'll come back to that. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So in dealing with this world, Peter says, God is not tardy. That's the first slow. God is not tardy. He's not late. God is not slack, is the way one translation puts it. He's not slack concerning His promise. God is never late. His plan has not been delayed. But He is slow. And it's a slow that every one of us can love. Do you, you do remember that Peter wrote this about 2,000 years ago. And in that slow, long process since then, God has been waiting. And it looks slow. It even might look delayed. But you know what? Not a one of us would be here if it had been faster. Are, are you with me? We would not be here if God's forbearance had not been so slow. So he asks us, he invites us in saying that love is patient to join him in his stride. And sometimes it looks delayed. Sometimes it looks like he's been held up. Sometimes he looks tardy. But God is slow because he's going at just the right pace to accomplish purposes that we cannot even begin to imagine. I don't think that Peter really probably could have envisioned when he wrote this that 2,000 years down the road we would still be waiting. But had we not been, we would not be here. And God had a plan that included you, that included me. And so he has continued to walk slowly and definitely and determinedly toward his plan to this very Hour. How long will it be? We don't know. But we do know that it is exactly on time and precisely reliable. And God invites us to join that exactly on time, totally reliable plan of his by keeping in step with him through patience that we're slow enough to walk with God. Now, I'd like to help you drill down into this a little bit more to kind of understand what this patient love looks like when it comes to relationships, to relationships with people that we love and want to love better, with enemies who we don't want to love but must love for Jesus' sake, with friends and family and coworkers and with all the people that God brings into our lives. So love in action, love is patient, looks like... Well, I, I want to actually tell you a little bit about this. Um, it was just a couple of weeks ago that Melissa and I were down in the desert, in the Mojave Desert. I've never been there. And, um, but we had a job of a couple of really sizable custom windows that had to be del delivered to a home in La Quinta, California. And, um, and I didn't want to send them via a big freight truck because I wasn't sure how that would go. And they were very expensive and, and very time-consuming to make. And so we delivered them uh, to this home in La Quinta, and we decided since we had to drive 1,300 miles down there that we would turn it into a little bit of time while we were there, and so we took a couple of days, two days, to uh, continue our time. La Quinta's in the desert, kind of like a little jewel in the desert, actually. Um, there's lots of water going there for sure, but, uh, but in, uh, to continue in the area of the desert, and we stayed at a little Airbnb that was directly opposite, opposite a tortoise reserve, and, um, and so this... Uh, we, we actually thought, well, we'd sure love to see a tortoise, and we went walking in the tortoise reserve, and we didn't find any tortoises, and we kept having to wait. Oh, there we are again, aren't we? Having to be patient. Anyway, so we couldn't see any tortoises, and we were having to leave on uh, that, that morning um, on our second day, and, um, and we thought we'd sure enjoy seeing a tortoise, Lord, and, and, um, 
And wouldn't you know it, right there in the road as we were getting ready to be done, having already walked in the reserve, we found one not in the reserve but on the road. And, um, and this guy, uh, you can probably guess what one of his preeminent qualities was. He was slow. <laughs> now, I don't know. Maybe tortoises can move fast, but this one didn't. In fact, you can see he's actually got sand on his back. I don't know why. Maybe he, I don't know what tortoises even do, but he had sand on his back somehow. And he was slow. It was morning, and he was warming up, and it was taking, he was taking his time getting off that road. Now, I'm happy to say he did get off the road before a car came, but uh, he, was, he was headed off into this reserve. So love that is patient is going to look slow, but what does that mean? How does that play out in real life? Where, where am I going to go with that? I mean, does that mean I just kind of dally around life and try to not do anything too quick? Let me show you just a few things that I think will help you in understanding what love is patient really looks like. And the first is that love is patient looks like no deadlines. No deadlines. There are no deadlines for other people to change. You know, think about it for a moment. How much can you do about somebody else's change anyway? And how does giving them a deadline to change help the matter? Love is patient means no deadlines. I give people time and space even when it's costly to me. Now, I can't say for you, uh, but I can say for me that I'm sort of okay with the idea of patience as long as it's fast. <laughs> In other words, I can be patient for a little while, and then I'm done being patient, and I'm ready to move on to the next thing. I'm ready to say, okay, I gave it my 30 minutes, and that was a stretch, but I gave it my 30 minutes, and now we either get in or we get out. Let's do this thing. We're fish or cut bait. Let's go, because I'm done just waiting. And that's tough on relationships. <sighs> Because if it doesn't get better fast, I want to do exactly what Paul tells us just earlier. I want to give up. I want to say that's enough. I want to say if you don't change by such and such a point in time, then there's no hope for our continuation in this relationship. What usually happens when I become impatient in a relationship then, when I put a deadline, is that I leap into the problem myself. And you know what happens? I multiply the problem by putting my own sin together with their sin, and we get lots of sin. Uh, you, you've maybe been there. You had a deadline in mind. You had a place that you said, this is far enough. And so when the person did not change in time, when the person did not actually conclude the process of working out the thing that bugs you, you jumped in with both feet, and now you've got a really big problem because you've got two people that are angry or two people that are sinning in other ways. So Paul says to us, love is patient. It doesn't give a deadline. Love doesn't say you have 10 minutes to get your attitude under control or else. Or it doesn't say you have five minutes to be in the car before I start honking the horn. It doesn't say I'm out of here if you don't turn over a new leaf. Love is patient means this. Now, please hear me on this. Love is patient means that you are giving a gift that truly is, as we described in the beginning, sacrificial and selfless because you're giving your time. You're giving your time in one sense, when you say you're giving your time, what you really are giving is you're giving away a little piece of your life. And sometimes you feel that pretty keenly, don't you? It's like, this is costing me a lot. I have a life to live. I have places to go. I have things to do. I have people to meet, right? And it's like, this is costing me to wait. And the answer is, it sure does. It sure does. And that's exactly what pleases God. Love is patient. It doesn't give a deadline for change. And because love is giving such a costly gift, if I can point out to you, love is often painful. It often hurts to love patiently. But it's also beautiful. 
It's beautiful. Some of you have watched as a faithful wife, perhaps, has loved an unbelieving husband for year after year, maybe decade after decade, continually showing the character of Christ by her patient love. Or maybe you've watched uh, parents of a handicapped child and you've watched as for years they've, they've poured their lives out for her and given the best years of their whole life to the care of this child. And I wonder how pleased God must be with such a sacrifice of patient love. Or, or maybe it's just a matter of, of not giving a deadline to a friend with whom you have a disagreement. Or maybe it's even in your marriage that you have a disagreement. And you give each other time and space to change. Because change is in God's hands anyway. And in so doing, you make room. You make room for love to grow up again. This time in richer, deeper ways than ever before. Because it's a love that doesn't have deadlines. Because love is patient. Well, love also means no demands. Love is patient means that in relationships, I don't make demands. Love doesn't negotiate. I'll do this for you if you'll do this for me. Love doesn't dictate. This is what you have to do and when you have to do it. Love doesn't threaten. You have to do this or else. Love does not demand. Patient love does not demand. It was just about a month ago that I was standing right here and um, at Reuben and Esther's wedding. And I was reminding them that there's a very important thing that love does in marriage. And it's true not only in marriage, but in all kinds of other relationships. In fact, in every other relationship, this is what I told them. If this, whatever it is, if this is not good for my spouse, it isn't good for me. And that's really kind of a rephrase of what Philippians chapter 2 is talking about. Philippians chapter 2 says this. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And all this is on the basis of how Jesus treated us, making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself to death, even to the death of a cross. So love is patient. Love does not demand means that I consider someone else's needs more important than my own. You know, if I'm doing that, if I'm really truly considering someone else's needs more important than my own, it's going to reduce, it's going to eliminate my demanding nature when it comes to our relationship. Many relationships are damaged by that. By, by recognizing that love is patient, I am put into the place to truly love. To love by waiting patiently for God who has put this person in my life for a purpose. And that purpose has to do with his love for me. Love also has no expectations. And I want us to dwell just for the last few minutes on this idea. Love has no expectations. Love is patient, cuts down my expectations. Now, you probably know that expectations kill relationships. They put the person on whom I set my expectations into a kind of prison. And sometimes, many times in fact, we don't even express verbally what it is that our expectations are. We're just anticipating that the other person should know what my expectations are so that they can meet my needs. Oh, did you hear how that just flipped, by the way? We're not looking at their needs anymore. I'm hoping that they're looking at my needs. It's a kind of a one-way, non-loving love. It's loving myself. So we put people into prison with our expectations, whether verbalized or unverbalized. We, we want to tell them how they'll relate to me, where they'll relate to me, and when they'll relate to me. We, we box the other person in and give him no way out but the door that I have ordained, or forget it. When Melissa and I were first married, I, I figured that we would um, agree on everything. 
<laughs> or that if we didn't actually agree on everything, that I would be able to convince her that I was right. You know how that's gone. That's not what love does. That's an expectation built on my understanding that I am superior in every way and that somehow I'm going to bring my wife into my superior understanding of how to do life. Our differences actually show something more important than just a unity of mind. It gives us a chance to give up our expectations and develop a unity of soul that's built on long loving when we differ. Now that's kind of stiff medicine, even as I say it, I'm having it rumble around in my mouth and realizing that it's going to have to get down to my heart. Because <laughs> that's painful, that's hard, right? To realize that, that I have to give up these expectations because that my perspective, my way is right. That kind of an expectation kills relationships, it destroys relationships. It's really in places of difference where we don't agree that we get the privilege of loving each other for Jesus' sake the way that Jesus loved us. And that's true even if the difference never <coughs> changes. Expectations often show up in, under the uh, category of control. They show up under the category of control because either I must control the relationship... Tell that person, dictate exactly how they're going to do the things that are happening. Or I get controlled. And either one, we'd say, is unhealthy. But it's more than unhealthy. It's sinful. It's not loving patiently. It's truly devastating to a relationship to have this kind of rhetoric going on in our minds. If he really understood me, he would. You fill in the blank. Right? If, if she really cared, she would fill in the blank. You know what every one of those, every time you have one of those go through your head, that's revealing the fact that you have an expectation about the way that somebody else should treat you. Love is patient, runs all the way past that into what God thinks about you. You really have to put your relationship on the altar when we say love is patient. Because you're giving God the chance to work on someone else and to work on you in a way that brings your relationship into a place that it could never otherwise come. You might be surprised what happens when you love someone enough to free that person from your expectations. Something wonderful happens to you because you experience a taste of the actual freedom that you're offering to them. This idea of expectation often is a demonstration that this person or this relationship has become an idol in my life. Because of this, I'm expecting that person to fill a place that only God is capable of filling. When I'm not patient with someone, what I'm really saying is I'm expecting you to do this for me and at this time. And I end up with them Filling the center of my view. My eyes aren't on God anymore. My eyes are on that person doing what I want them to do. When an expectation is not met, we feel justified in stopping loving. If that's the way you feel, then blank. And we dish back to them what we felt we received, but in greater measure. Can I just say that the person that you have built expectations around is not able to bear the weight. I'm not just saying they're not willing. I'm saying they are not able to bear the weight. And the reason is they were not designed to bear the weight of your expectations. No idol can satisfy. Not a person, not a stone god, no idol can satisfy. No person can fully meet all your expectations. So here's the problem. We know that this is true, and we can even agree, probably, that everything I've unfolded this morning, uh, you know, at least has some ring of understanding to it. We don't, but we don't know what to do to change that. It's like, well, I've got these expectations, and I've, I have these demands, and I, 
I have these dictates in my mind, so what am I going to do about it? And I want to show you, taking you back to where our scripture reading was this morning, exactly what you can do. And it's very simple. It's very simple. Listen to what David writes in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 62. Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Listen again in verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. You know that actually there's another translation that translates that. My expectation is from him. The one thing that you need to do, the one thing that I need to do, if I'm going to love patiently, is to rest all my expectations on God alone. The person that I want to build my expectations around cannot bear the weight. But can I just tell you that the Almighty God can? He can bear the weight of your expectations and He can change your expectations as you wait for Him. You're hearing David go through that process. Wait, my soul, on God. My whole hope is in Him. In that process of waiting, that no man's land, that world between the worlds, that place between where I am and where I want to be, God is at work. God is at work to shape you in the waiting room and to give you expectations that match his own. So don't put your expectations on the people around you. Don't build a false world, a fairy tale existence around someone who cannot possibly bear the weight of what you think they should do. Isaiah 40 very familiar passage, builds this idea out further. It says, in words that you're well familiar with, even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Psalm 27, 14 says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Frankly, this truth is so woven into the fabric of Scripture that you can hardly get away from it anywhere you turn. You cannot love without being patient. You cannot be patient while you hold on to your expectations of people and relationships in your life. And you cannot get rid of expectations that imprison others and trap you in a loveless existence without transferring the weight of all your expectations to the broad shoulders of the almighty God. Really, impatience in my life and in your life is a signal. It's a flashing red light that says this. You are expecting someone or something else to do for you what only God can do. It's a signal that we're not really loving but that we're caught in a trap, however subtle, of idolatry. <clears throat> Do you know who you're most likely to be impatient with? It's the people you're closest to. It's the people that matter the most to you. The people that you think that you love and that you certainly want to love. You sort of love them. You love them in theory. Paul's giving us here the pattern by which we take theoretical love the ideas of love that we cherish in our minds, those fairy tale ideas about romantic concepts of love and giving us a chance to actually love the people around us by being patient with them, by going slowly in anticipation, in expectation, in demands, by going slowly as we wait for, not for them, as we wait for God. You know, I'd like to just close with that one idea and remind you that in this waiting room, the person for whom you're waiting is not that person that you want to patiently love. That will lead to problems because, again, you're putting weight on their shoulders that they cannot bear. 
especially in super troubled relationships, it's easy to think, I'm just, I'm just waiting for that person to um, take a step, even a step. And you think, I'm really being quite um, gracious to say, I'm only expecting a step. I'm just one step. They can't bear the weight. And you will push yourselves apart. That, that expectation will actually drive the two of you apart. In the waiting room, it's God's waiting room. And you're waiting for him. My soul, wait in silence for God only. All my expectations are in him. God can bear the weight. He calls us to join him in loving people the way that he loves us. Slowly, patiently, with much forbearance, and continuing under the load of the pressure that that brings, even in our relationship, for the joy of joining him, being right in step with him. And I invite you to join me in adventuring together with God in this. Perhaps you'll get a chance this week. No, you will get a chance this week. You'll get a chance this week to patiently love someone, to not put all kinds of restrictions and guidelines around them, but to put all of your hope in God, to direct your prayer to Him, and even as David did here in Psalm 62, to instruct your soul when you're tempted to give up on loving patiently and to say, oh my soul, wait patiently for God. Let's pray. Our Father, we, <laughs> we realize as we pause for this moment at the conclusion of this service how easy it is for us to be trapped by the impatience of an idle, loving heart which wants things now from people now, that wants people to do things our way. And Lord, we're asking that you, our great God, would help us to truly love, not just to love in theory, not to just love in the abstract, but to love in reality, to love the way that you loved us, to love patiently. And we're asking that you do it through us in such a way that even the world around us, as they see our love for one another, our patient love toward one another, would be impressed by the reality that this love, that this love is of God, because it is. So we're asking that you'd work that out by your Holy Spirit in our lives and in our experience for Jesus' sake and for the glory of his kingdom. Amen.